0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. You know, of all the people I've interviewed for this show, only a handful were around when I first showed up in AA. My guest on today's show, Sue C., was one of those people, and her presence in my early meetings was an important factor in my willingness and desire to keep attending AA meetings, She was not only welcoming to me, but the way she shared about the steps and traditions, sponsorship and meetings, and service to others and to God, was one of my first realizations that I wanted what another alcoholic had. She exemplified how the promises always materialize, if we work for them. Throughout her 35 years of sobriety, Sue has stayed close to the program, using what she learned in the beginning to undo the damage to her family and herself. Facing severe challenges along the way, she engaged the fellowship through meetings and her sponsors and sponsees to meet those challenges and demonstrate the life-saving benefits of AA. One of the greatest gifts she has sustained has been a 50-year marriage, the last 12 years of which have been happily bolstered by her husband getting sober in 2008. Sue has been a friend for many years, and the success of her program is greatly informative to both single and married members of our fellowship. So please enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my AA sister, Sue C.
1: My name is Sue and I'm an alcoholic.
0: Hi, Sue. Thanks for being here today. I'm so glad we we talked yesterday. I didn't realize that you and your husband just celebrated a fifty year anniversary.
1: We did.
0: That is absolutely amazing.
1: It is. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> I do, actually.
0: Well, I, I happen to know your husband and have been friends with him for the past uh, 12 years that he has been in the program. It always amazes me when I run into couples who've been married a really long time where one or both of them were practicing the 12 steps of either Alcoholics Anonymous and or Al-Anon. Yeah. He has been sober now, I believe, 12 years.
1: Yes. Yes. 12
0: and a half. Right. And what is your sobriety date?
1: Mine is June the 1st, 1986.
0: Okay. So you're coming up on 35 years.
1: 35,
0: right. 35 years. Okay. Yeah. So there's yeah. a gap there of uh, 23 years between the num- number of years you were sober and then when he came into the program.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: What was life like when you first went in and then it took a lot of years before he came in? What was that like at the beginning
2: there?
1: Um, When I first came in, what I remember most about my early days is the um, craving for a drink, you know, because Mm -hmm. I was a daily drinker. So I was truly, you know, physically addicted to alcohol, Mm -hmm. but also mentally and, of course, spiritually, very messed up. Uh Um, And I remember uh, what it was like going through withdrawal. I remember sleeplessness. I remember, Mm -hmm. you know, those early things. As far as how it was in my family at that time, I don't know if they recognized that it was getting better, that I was better because I was so twitchy. But Mm -hmm. it wasn't very long before um, they were able to better predict what I was going to do. And one of the things they knew I was going to do was go to a meeting every day.
2: Hmm, and mm-hmm. and
1: again this was because because I was I was afraid of of drinking again and sure. um I believed what they told me you know that mm-hmm. if I didn't do the things that were suggested that that mm-hmm. I probably would drink again. So anyway w- uh what I remember is Dale stepping up and kind of really making lots of space for me to um try and learn this new way to live. Um Really? And he, uh, he had no knowledge of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that got me to the rooms, one of the many things um, that mm-hmm. happened you know, beforehand was, I remember him saying to me, if you're not going to do anything about your drinking, I'm going to go to Al-Anon. Now, I didn't know what that was, mm-hmm. but he had spoken with an old gentleman who was a friend who had a wife that was alcoholic, and she had died of alcoholism, mm,
2: and apparently mm-hmm.
1: he had gone to Al-Anon, and so my dear husband, in desperation, mm-hmm. talked to this man about mm-hmm. our home life and what was going on, and mm-hmm. that's when he found out that there was this thing called Al-Anon. Now, hmm. he he never went, because it wasn't long after that, um, that I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. So uh, those years where I was getting and learning how to live sober um, were um, very slowly restorative for our family. And our family consisted of my husband and our, at that time, 11-year-old daughter.
0: I see. Uh Uh Uh-huh. Right.
1: And some dogs, and um, okay. yeah. <laughs> and you know, within such a short period of time, things got better. I don't know how much my daughter got, but Dale got to what was going on. He understood that mm-hmm. um, something good was happening. That mm. my my anger, my rage, my depression, all those things were beginning to straighten out. You know. Mm. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. he's loved AA from the beginning.
0: So were you in? Dale, uh, he's anonymous as well. He said he was going to Al-Anon if you didn't start to get sober. Yeah. And yet, once you got sober, and I, I believe you were going to Rosewood in the beginning, were you not? The Actually. Rosewood Hospital meeting.
1: Yeah, no, I actually came into the Houston Western Club, which I okay. don't think is there anymore. No,
0: that's gone.
1: Yeah, and, uh, so I went every day and I right. was, uh, I attended that club and that club only for almost the first 4 years of my sobriety before okay. I branched out yeah
0: yeah yeah the reason i was mentioning rosewood was i remember that meeting there was an al anon meeting that went out, that went on concurrently with that meeting you'd right. walk to the right to get to the aa meeting you'd walk yeah. to the left to get to to the al anon meeting And it's curious to me, there were always these couples that would walk in and they'd split at the door and some would go right and some would go left. Yeah. Um, Did you ever, whenever you started going to that Rosewood meeting and the convenience of being able to go right or left and come in as a couple and do that, did you ever suggest to Dale that he might want to uh, go to the Al-Anon meeting?
1: No, I didn't. Um, And I... I think part of it, Howard, was that I was so used to being the problem in our lives that uh-huh. it never even occurred to me. And maybe it took me a long time to understand that this is indeed a family disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, his family's riddled with it, my family's riddled with it. Mm-hmm. But as far as an avenue for him, um, you know, dealing with um, some of his stuff around sure. alcohol and alcoholism, It never occurred to me to try and fix him, and I'm Mm -hmm. not sure exactly why that is. I knew I was a full-time job Mm -hmm. as far as my recovery went, and being a self-centered alcoholic, I probably wasn't thinking about anybody else, but but yeah, Yeah. no, it never occurred to me, and things got so much better, you know, and he was working hard, and I was working, and I don't know, it just uh it seemed to us um and I'm sure he uh-huh. would validate this that um you know without my drunkenness in the home
2: mm-hmm.
1: and me working on me, things got better really quickly, and they yeah. stayed that way and they and they yeah. got better and better right, and so his journey into our program happened many years after, and his active alcoholism happened many years after many years after Mm.
0: you'd mentioned earlier that that both families were riddled with uh with alcoholism what do you remember about your your early life what it was like in your family of origin with regard to alcohol and alcoholism
1: yes well alcoholism was never spoken of alcoholic Mm. was not a word you would ever hear in my home Really? But alcohol was the dominant force in all of our lives. Mm. And um, Mm -hmm. my parents were good people. My dad was in the war. My mom was a war bride and Mm -hmm. World War II. And I remember Benny Goodman and Frank Sinatra and lots of music and lots Mm -hmm. of people over drinking and Mm -hmm. dancing. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. it was like an old movie. Except... (laughs) Except mm-hmm. that there would be fights, and you know things you didn't see on the movies, where um, right. money would be lost, cars would be wrecked, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what I remember as a kid mostly is the unpredictability of it all. You know, mm. not being able to know who was going to come in the door at night when my dad got home from work, or mm. um, I remember listening to late night fights. You know, mm. after they'd sat around and drank and then somebody would get mad and then there would be these, you know, fights. Mm.
2: And this was mm-hmm. all
1: normal to me. Um, I never quit questioned it and I probably never connected any of it to the fact that they were drinking alcohol excessively. I probably never did. But at the same time mm -hmm. that was going on, there was family fun too.
0: Yeah. The scary times when you were hearing the arguing and everything else, that's, that is a scary thing for kids to have to hear. And, uh, you know, I heard a lot of, a lot of yelling and rage, even though neither of my parents drank, my dad had a, he was a rageaholic in a lot of ways. And it was scary. It was scary because you'd hear it in the other room and you wouldn't know what to think or what to do. Do you have siblings?
1: I had an older sister. She died um, uh, tragically in uh, 19, New Year's Eve 1979 in a car accident oh. along with her eldest daughter, who was 18. And oh, God. Um, they were actually going to my um, niece. Who could drive was um, driving my sister to an al-anon meeting she had started oh. al-anon and mm. they were having a meeting and a new year's eve gathering and oh, i'm um, so
0: sorry i actually
1: i oh, no, i actually met the woman who was her sponsor she hadn't mm. been in very long um mm. but her husband had a problem and i had a problem she was well qualified to attend that program and wow. Yeah, it was sad because I think, and, and I think, uh, let's see. I said seventy-nine. It was eighty-nine. So 89. I had three and a half years sobriety at that point. I see. Uh-huh,
0: yeah. Uh-huh.
1: And um, so that was my older sister, and then I have a younger brother who suffers from this disease and lots of other stuff. And there's yeah. four years between she and I, and four years between he and I.
0: So in your family of origin, there were, there were three of you, Mm uh, with the oldest, let's say being 12 while the youngest was four and the eight year old in the middle, which was you.
1: And you guys
0: were hearing all this going on. What did you make of it? And do you remember ever talking with your siblings about mom and dad and what's going on?
1: No, no conversations. Each one of us, um, do you know, as an adult, it, uh, I recognized that I slept with my arms over my ears. You know, hmm. that was my sleeping position. And that was from early childhood trying to drown out the noise, you know. Wow. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. I don't do it anymore, but I don't know when it stopped. When I first came into the program, I was still sleeping that way. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I know. I mean, I put that together. I, I'm assuming. That yeah. I mean, why would you why would you do that except that you're trying to cover your ears? You know, you're covering your ears.
0: Yeah. What a uh, remnant from a childhood.
1: Exactly. Because I'm 36 yeah. when I come into AA, and so.
0: So as a kid, you were hearing all this going on between two parents who were drinkers. Did either of them ever uh, seek help for alcoholism?
1: No. After I got sober and after my mom died, one time I uh, my dad said that he had been invited to go by a guy who told him he could meet women there. <laughs> <laughs> now, my dad was a hoot. He really was yeah. and uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. could tell a story. And, uh, so I was never sure if he actually ever went. And after he died, I found a copy of the 12 and 12 in a drawer. And so I thought, you know, it's... Highly possible he went, but he never told me about it.
0: He never told you. Wow.
1: Yeah. Mm -mm. Mm -mm.
0: So all of the recovery in the family started with you at 36, you said. So there's a lot of time between the the point at which you're a child and 36. What were the intervening years like? Mm -hmm. And when did you first have a drink on your own accord or on your own decision?
1: Right, right. Well, of course... um, you know, we were offered little glasses of wine or champagne as children, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, tiny little. Oh, yeah. Um, so we could practice, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, they also had candy cigarettes when we were little, you know. Right, so, I remember um, those,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: But, uh, I was probably thirteen when my little across the street neighbor and I got into the liquor cabinet when her parents and my parents were somewhere and uh and I remember drinking and twirling down the street under the street lights. Just twirling, you know. And it was <laughs> fabulous. It was just the best. Um, and you know, couldn't wait to do it again. The next day we had to get in the car with her mom and drive to Seguin. and her mom drove a car like a sewing machine, you know, like that. (laughs) And she had to pull over a lot of times, um, to, uh, to let us, um, out of the car to be sick, but um, after mm. that, uh, you know, it was intermittent, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, but I got really drunk several times, um, certainly before I was 16 years old, drunk enough to make choices and decisions that I would never have made had I been sober, mm. and it mm-hmm. made me become somebody who was bold and brave and risky and all those things that, that were, you know, not actually actually my true nature.
0: So boldness and bravery are usually the outcome of no really bad consequences happening. Did you have consequences when you drank or did you get away with it and that made you feel invincible?
1: Yeah, I got away with it and I had a lot of near misses. Really? You know, I almost went to jail. But I can remember coming home drunk and my parents recognizing it.
2: Mm -hmm. And I was,
1: you know, I'd been out with friends or maybe on a date and and i remember them saying this is really good because now you know how much you don't want to drink they they saw it as a positive thing they turned Mm. my out of my mind drunk sick you know slur my words as um as a good experiment for me wow i know i know it
0: my dad might have done this to me at some point although I know it's probably a repressed memory when he caught me smoking and made me smoke a whole pack at once and get violently sick or something like that that's what it (laughs) sounds like to me where you're you got away with it not only got away with it but they condoned it yeah yeah yeah. wow once they kind of gave you that permission I can imagine you were the uh you were the hero amongst your friends huh
1: well, yeah, because um coming from a long line of people who drank to excess, you know to me, there was never any question that you drank for effect because I saw that happen it wasn't yeah. it yeah. wasn't about just taking the edge off, it was about. Mm. Going all the way there, Mm -hmm. you know, like I say, I should have died many times in cars. I didn't drive, so it wasn't me driving the cars I was riding around Mm -hmm. in, but I was riding Mm -hmm. around with other drunks And and I remember, um, oh my gosh, a group of us being somewhere and one of the guys attacking an old man. And I mean, you know, those kinds of, uh, uh, you know, I was... Nearly raped one night. Um, oh. I, I mean, I can remember these things, but they are all, the, the important thing about them is that they all had to do with me and the people I was with being under the influence. Because I saw it kind of as my coming out, you know, getting mm-hmm. involved with the the drinking and then the drug culture, because, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking about the 60s and stuff, too. Sure. And I always mm-hmm. Proud of myself because I was such a wallflower, such a quiet, hesitant, never uh, comfortable in a group of people. And so, you know, when I discovered these uh, products that you could ingest and Mm -hmm. become who you wanted to be, I thought it was like miraculous. And, um, but I remember thinking back, you know, I wonder who I would have been. (laughs) And now I get to know that, you know, because I'm sober. Um, But I remember even as a young person wondering that, you know, who would I have been without this?
0: I tend to think oftentimes about the decisions that I made under the influence and what it might have been like if I had made decisions with a clear head. Because it seems like all the decisions I made under the influence always turned out to have kind of negative consequences. Although I made it anyway, you never know about the road not taken. But... um, you were hanging with this group. Was it a particular group? Was it hippies or was it just people who...
1: Yes. Really. Yes. I, I hesitate to use the term, but it is true that I was a hippie yeah. and yeah. hung with those people and, mm-hmm. um, you know... Had the clothes, had the long-haired boyfriends, um, mm-hmm. and um, and and relished in that culture and that music and mm-hmm. that time in life when everything was being challenged. And sure, um, having you know long debates with my father about political things, and yeah. But I will say that uh, I never actually actively got anything done, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in terms of being an activist, it was only in my mind, you know, uh, um,
2: huh, although
1: huh. I do remember one night, and this is before Dale and I were married, we were married very young, but um, mm-hmm. my best friend's boyfriend had his draft card, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he was 1A, and he was going, and we tried for, you know, 24 hours to find some heroin that mm. we could get into him so that he could be tested and test positive and not have to go. Because at that time, you have to remember, when we saw our boys, our young friends and men going, it was like they were going to die. And so, yeah. I mean, that was mm-hmm. the mindset. And so we couldn't find any. So I wasn't, you know, in with that hmm. crowd. Thank the Lord. Um mm-hmm. So we took a pair of white, tight jeans, and we dyed them pink. And he <laughs> went He went to his draft board uh, induction with tight pink jeans on, and he was oh rejected. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and of course, that got stamped on whatever paperwork there is, but it wasn't <laughs> true. Um,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: So... Um,
0: was it really that easy? I mean... Uh-
1: it worked for him. It worked for him. Mm, this would have been...
0: 1969. Yeah. 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 That was the year my brother was in Vietnam. Well, 68 and 69. And uh, right. and I remember all the different things people did to try and get out of having to go. And pink tight pants never <laughs> occurred to me. As, as one of the things people did. So were you involved in anti-war rallies and, and that sort of thing at the time?
1: Minimally, minimally, yeah. Because um, people who are drinking and smoking dope yeah. and you know, doing they don't get very much done, Howard. They sit around yeah, and talk I about remember. things. But right. yeah, but um, mm-hmm. no, there were mm-hmm. people who were activists mm-hmm. and I paid attention to all that stuff. But no, yeah. I, I I don't think I could call me. I didn't ever go to a sit in. I was more mm-hmm. interested in what was gonna happen. You know, on the weekend.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, sure. And, I get um, that. Yeah.
1: So I have to be honest about living through that period of time. You know, we were in it for the party. That's the truth of it.
0: Did you go to uh, college after high school? What did you do when you got out of high school?
1: I did not. I I moved out of my parents' house. um the week after my high school graduation and to move down to the Montrose area, which was the hippie trippy place to live. I got a little huh. job, lived with some girlfriends, and we just, you know, lived our lives down there.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, had parties and gatherings at other people's places down there, and it was it was like a community. It was mm-hmm. uh, like being part of something big mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. wonderful. And then I ran out of money, and I moved back home temporarily, and somewhere in there I met my future husband, who at that time was an English major at the University of Houston and mm-hmm. just beautiful little hippie boy that wrote poetry, and um, <laughs> we met, well, we actually knew each other because it was a circle of people, and he knew mm-hmm. somebody that dated my friend, you know, that kind of thing, and mm-hmm. we actually went mm-hmm. to the same high school,
0: Wow!
1: but we didn't know each other then, and so we actually had our first date in early November of 1971, uh-huh. and we were married in March of 1970. 72.
0: Oh my goodness, that quickly. Yeah.
1: God was actually looking out for both of us, clearly. In what way? Even though I was, you know, all about thumbing my nose at the establishment and my parents mm-hmm. and being mm-hmm. this really not as bad as I thought I was in my own mind, but when I recognized, when he came to my home for the first time and I recognized the comfort level with my family,
2: Mm-hmm. And that
1: was because he, too, came from an alcoholic home. Sure. And it was like something clicked. Hmm. You know, I suppose back then I actually did want them to approve of um, who it was I paired up with, you know.
0: Was getting married that quickly after you started dating, was that a statement of defiance or was that just actually because you guys wanted to be married?
1: No, we, we, all of our friends were living together back then. Remember, you know, the free spirits sure. didn't get married. Mm-hmm. We didn't need them. Yeah. But we went to my mother and said, we want to live together. And my mother said, well, I understand and I know you'll do what you have to do, but I just don't think I can look you in the eyes on Christmas morning. <laughs> ever again if you do that you know wow and so all we knew howard was that we we needed to be together and so we got married it was it was no big deal right a lot of it was to please them
0: so that little act of rebellion never actually happened for you did it
1: (laughs) no it didn't another case where i had big bold ideas but when it came down to the actual action you know i'm just milk toast yeah Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) that's great
1: but you know in my mind and my persona and then as my drinking progressed a lot of angry and combative and confrontive stuff about me came out and i would do things that Mm -hmm. would put me in jeopardy and put my husband in jeopardy i mean i remember being closed in on the highway coming back from austin and um you know, there's two truckers and we got squeezed somehow and me going by and flipping off the trucker mm-hmm. and him chasing us all the way to Houston because I made oh him so mad. Gosh. You know, but I, I yeah. would do things like that, you know, without yeah. thinking, you know, just lots of um Very, very um, risky and getting into very, very life-threatening situations without ever knowing.
0: Yeah. So this was all while you were under the influence or were you doing this at times where you were sober?
1: no 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 um always under the influence you know i now i'm talking about later in my drinking there were some years in there when we lived in austin we had our daughter and dale played baseball for a city league team we both had Mm -hmm. jobs we had friends and you know we would go to the armadillo world headquarters Mm -hmm. and hear music Mm -hmm. and Willie Nelson and, you know, back in the old days and going to listen to live music. And those times, um, you know, the drinking was part of the evening, but it wasn't necessarily part of our lives um, hmm. on that regular basis. But altered states of mind mm-hmm. were natural to us. Because we've grown up that way and we've been doing things to our poor little brains since we were very young. Yeah.
0: Right. So you sought that out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I did. And I do remember um, when Dale decided to come to Houston to go back to school and I had uh, to interview down here from my position and I went to Mm -hmm. the guy I was working for in, in Austin and and asked him to write me a letter of reference so I could get a job down here. And he said, um, you write the letter and then bring it to me. We'll have lunch and I'll sign it.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I remember that day I'd written a letter. Mm-hmm. And before I left the house to go have lunch with him, I drank a beer really fast. Hmm. And that's... It's funny that I remember that because that was actually the first time that I used alcohol to do something normal in my life, right? Hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. To Mm -hmm.
1: um, bolster myself, to um, the rest of the time it was just part of the party. But this was, I'm going to do something where I'm going to be evaluated or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever for my work. Mm-hmm. And I'm not okay like I am. So let me just drink this beer real quick and hmm. take, the ed- take the edge off, right?
0: That was the first time you had that realization that you were doing it?
1: I knew what I was yeah. doing. Yeah. That's interesting. And then, gosh, from that time, which was winter of 79, and then mm-hmm. I got sober in um, summer of 86. Yeah, so from the time we get to Houston, that yeah. one episode that I have a memory of just launched me and i began to drink for that reason with regularity it was because i didn't feel uh relaxed normal comfortable um, with the people either my work life um, i would say a lot of it stemmed from our daughter now being in preschool and first grade and i had Mm -hmm. contact with these other mothers they made me Mm -hmm. nervous I wasn't like them, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, uh, you know, I had to have drinks in order to like, okay, I can be one of them, I can make conversation, I can um, be part of this, you know, but Mm -hmm. so that part of my drinking that, um, you know, that had been the early hallmark of, Mm -hmm. you know, finding a substance where you could be fun and relaxed and enjoy other people.
2: It mm-hmm. came
1: full circle, and then that, that's what it became to me. Mm-hmm. And even though I had experimented with many other things, it was mm-hmm. alcohol that I started with, it was alcohol that took me down. Yeah, And essentially for the same reason.
0: I'm curious about that. Do you think that given the fact that you never really stopped drinking, but the reasons why you were drinking changed, was there ever a point at which you thought you were going to drink anyway? What would that have looked like if you had kept drinking for the reasons previous to your awakening as to the real reasons why you drank? Does that make sense?
1: I think so. that, to me, would have required that I be able to drink more normally and, Uh um, You know, I experienced the same thing so many other people did that that I would overshoot the mark, you know, I would get to the happy place and then go beyond. And so there's no way to control. Mm hmm. You know, the reasons that I was drinking were the same, but what it was doing to me was different, you know. Hmm. It, it was making me the drunkest one in the room. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. If I had developed a little more as a person before I started drinking and using drugs, maybe I would have been able to, um, I don't know. I'll never know. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I do think about it as being injury to this young brain of mine mm-hmm. back in those early teen years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence around that there is some real damage that gets done while the brain is still developing uh, till age, I think, 25 or 26. It's still considered being developed. So you were essentially functioning uh, in your job while you were drinking. Did you drink during the day during your job or was this something you did afterwards?
1: No, not until I was able to quit work was did I start drinking during the day. And okay. that happened when my husband's career took off. And for the first time, I didn't need to work. And the best I could do with that, Howard, was to start drinking earlier. It got to a point where I didn't feel normal unless there was alcohol in my system
0: huh. uh-huh. Now, to me uh-huh. that's
1: the true physical addiction that's, oh, yeah. that's where it's the period where you have the shakes mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. the period where you're not sleeping you're passing out it's the period mm-hmm. and so I might be able to postpone a drink for mm-hmm. four or five hours but, mm-hmm. um, but it was constantly on my mind and so mm-hmm. I think at that point what I can now recognize is that my ability to be hireable <laughs> was uh-huh. over. My right. ability to um be somebody that could be counted on, Dale stepped up a lot during this period of time, Did he? you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, because you know we had to drive our daughter to and from school. She was in a private school and mm-hmm. um I was unable to do one of the you know one of the drives many many times i'd have to call him and say i'm i'm sick well he knew what that meant you know
0: so would you say then that his taking over some of that enabled your continuance of drinking
1: yes i think it did and and i, I it's hard for me to say how many years this was but let's Mm -hmm. say this was the last two years of our drinking and you know Mm -hmm. after i'd been particularly bad like so many of us i would you know pull it together i'd be all apologies i'd cook Mm -hmm. i'd clean i'd i'd do everything good for a week or two not to say i stopped drinking i just was able to curtail it enough Because I was scared, you know, and I could Mm. see the look on his face. I could see, you know, the kinds of things that were going through his mind. And even though nothing was ever said like, I'm going to take our daughter and leave you, Mm -hmm. nothing was ever said like that. But Mm. there's a knowing. There's a knowing about it when your disease is progressing and someone else is having to pick up the slack of what you're not able to do anymore.
0: Were you and he still able to drink together, and was he having the same kind of issues with drinking as you were?
1: No, he wasn't. He was the sane one. He was the responsible one. He could go out and have a couple of drinks. Uh, And I think he did that more and more so that he could care for me and and he told me later i never knew that he would grab you know he would grab my drinks and hide them from me or pour them out and i never huh. i never knew
2: that <laughs> yeah
1: he did all the things a child raised in an alcoholic home would do you know and he was raised in an alcoholic home so you know yeah. there is loyalty there is love there is um, you know you yeah. do what you got to do
0: A lot of caretaking, too, that goes on.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book Podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. The Big Book Podcast is read by Howard L., who receives no compensation for this vital service work the big book podcast is an engaging word for word cover to cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories including more than 50 rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions listen to all 85 episodes anytime any place search for big book podcast on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or listen on bigbookpodcast.com you'll know you've arrived when you see our logo a first edition big book wearing headphones and we're back you mentioned just a few minutes ago about drinking was your normal setting you drank to feel normal can i assume that when you weren't drinking you were experiencing other kinds of emotions what happened when you couldn't drink or when you didn't drink what sort of emotional upset did that create or did you ever not were you ever not able to actually get there
1: you no know, there there were times you know when for uh-huh. one reason or another I couldn't drink and it it to me what I remember is You know, very much like early sobriety, nervous, and like a cat in a room full of rockers. You know, you're just not comfortable anywhere you are. You're not comfortable in your own skin. You Mm -hmm. can't think of anything to say to somebody. If you're in a social setting, You, it's unbearable. It's unbearable, Mm -hmm. you know, without Mm -hmm. alcohol. I didn't Mm -hmm. do anything. That I didn't go to movies because you don't drink in movies. I didn't go to cafeterias. I didn't go... You know my whole life was geared around being in a setting where drinking was okay and my perfect goal was to be in a situation where all my responsibilities were gone and I could drink as I wanted to you know hmm. and that takes a lot of arranging when you've got a young yeah. child when you've got yeah and you've got a job and um, so yeah I mean it takes a lot to try and make that happen
0: Can you recall any times that you were able to arrange that?
1: Yeah, well, we had—Dale's mother lived in town, and she was a saint and a wonderful woman, and I loved her dearly. And she was—she uh, mm-hmm. loved our daughter, and she would keep her whenever we wanted, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. uh, before we moved back to—see, we lived in Houston, and we moved to Austin for 10 years, which is mm-hmm. where our daughter was born. Then we came back to Houston when he went back to school. And mm-hmm. um, perfectly, I had her available also to help mm. during this time that my drinking's escalating. I I had uh, another person I could count on to watch over our daughter who loved her. Mm. You know, but I will say this about our sweet daughter is that mm-hmm. at age six, she had migraine headaches Uh mm. At age seven and eight and nine, when most little girls want to go and spend the night with their friends, she wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And that was because, I mean, these I can look back on and the effects Mm -hmm. of alcoholism on her, afraid to leave home, migraine Mm -hmm. headaches, um, some insomnia. You know, these Mm -hmm. are things that aren't normal in that young a child. And I Mm -hmm. can... I can look at those things and say today, you know, those were a result of my drinking. Yeah. And the unpredictability. And Mm -hmm. um,
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: so, um, you know, by the time... I got here. Uh, she was very often the adult in the home. You know, <laughs> really, she was. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, Dale, uh-huh. I say that because Dale was working incredible hours. He was really not home a lot. Yeah. Um, And except he would, you know, mm-hmm. rush in to help when he needed to, but. Mm-hmm. You know, things like, uh, I need this permission slip signed and $10 to go mm-hmm. on the field trip tomorrow, mom. Okay, yeah. I'll do that, you know, and have an ask again and again oh, and again, you know, that's those, tough. those kinds of things. Yeah.
2: Did
0: your daughter wind up on your ninth step amends for what happened back when she was a little kid?
1: Early amends to her. I don't think she was old enough the first go-round to actually Mm -hmm. understand. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But as time's gone on, you know, we've had a discussion about that, those things that she experienced. Um, Mm -hmm. We've had a discussion Mm -hmm. about um, those times when um, somebody else had to step in because I wasn't there. You know, I
0: get it. I get we're it. We're uh-huh. very
1: close now. That's only because of this program. Yeah. You know, and she has two beautiful daughters who who she's doing. She and her husband are doing a beautiful job raising them. And mm-hmm. um, it is um, for grandparents. It is yeah. the you know the second chance to.
0: It's kind of the do over.
1: Uh, and to be fully, fully present. Yeah, to be
0: fully present. Yeah. Let me ask you, um, so what was going on? This sounds like a a situation that wasn't getting any better for a long time for you. What was going on in 1985 and leading up to you're actually getting sober? What was the What was your home situation and your relationship situations?
1: Yeah. So Dale was working incredible hours. I was drinking more. What happened is my mother died suddenly. Hmm. And she died April 15th. And I remember the phone call from my dad. And she'd had a Mm -hmm. massive stroke at home and died. And, you know, Howard, I couldn't drink enough to kill the pain. You know, Mm. I remember drinking Mm -hmm. and trying to anesthetize myself
2: Mm -hmm. the way Mm -hmm. I had
1: been so successful at. And I couldn't do it i couldn't mm. I couldn't work it and and I remember going to um uh, where they lived to her funeral, and just between me and my dad i mean it was outrageous, you know you know playing loud music getting drunk i mean it was awful, it was awful mm. so then June first is my sobriety date, so right. uh-huh. it wasn't long after and i and I think about her death as being part of the things uh The building blocks that got me so ready to be um, taken in by AA, you know. So it was that, and of course, our home life, I maybe I innately knew that my daughter was uh, maturing and going to be going into her teen years. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe there was a part of me that recognized that that wasn't going to get any better unless I got better, too, you know. Mm-hmm. And then my relationship with Dale, you know, there wasn't really any relationship with him during this sure. period of time. It was... Mm-hmm him checking on me him um me trying to fulfill my role uh mm-hmm. in our yeah. family and in my life and and just failing at it you know and um uh, mm-hmm. it was not a happy time for him or any of us yeah
0: in the preceding years had you ever had glimpses of yourself having a problem or were you always able to talk yourself out of it
1: yeah not until like the very end, not until like really? maybe the last year because because I grew up that way it was normal um, people yeah. felt bad in the morning they had hangovers that's mm. that's what grown-ups do yeah. this is what we do we drink and but I began to um, do things if I wasn't able to get out and get to the store if I ran out of um, wine, which is what I drank mm. um Then then I I would have to go to the store, and this was a huge ordeal, you know, to go and get the supply. I mean, Mm
2: -hmm. you know, that's
1: when you know you're at the end when, oh, my God, I haven't kept up with it, and I've got to go back out there and get some. And, of Mm -hmm. course, then you've got to go to different stores. And I can remember being in the grocery store and actually reading the alcohol content on the different wines. Mm -hmm. And so we Mm -hmm. were not going for quality here. We were going for the best... Cheapest buzz and um, mm-hmm. and I remember a morning where somebody had given us uh, a box, a big box of those liqueur filled chocolates,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I couldn't get to the store. I wasn't able. I was not able to drive at that point. I was still mm-hmm. so hungover, and mm-hmm. I ate that entire box of chocolates. <laughs> I mean, and then got sick, and um, you know, and Dale. If he drank, he often had... um, All I know is he had some vodka in the freezer, which is where you keep it, I guess. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: I would drink that. And when it got down low, I would add water and put it back. Well, eventually the thing froze, you know, because water
2: freezes. (laughs) You know, stuff like that,
1: stuff like that, where I would just do anything to get it in my system again. So when those things were happening, Howard, I was aware this is not normal. Normal people don't do this. And but. But to me it was this slow crawl up to where awareness, you know. Yeah, and then
0: Yeah. So how did you find your way to the doors of AA then when you finally got to that point mm-hmm. where you were ready to stop?
1: Um, one of my best girlfriend drinking buddies um actually had gone and she reported to me that it was wonderful. And really? that was about all I knew remember she gave me a piece of paper that said, if you keep thinking what you thought, you'll keep getting what you got.
2: Something mm-hmm. like that. I don't yeah, remember yeah. if that
1: was exactly it. But she, she had come over and she'd handed me this piece of paper. And I don't know, I found it underneath a clock on the mantelpiece. And, mm-hmm. um, and, then, I, and then I remembered Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I called Intergroup. And then Mm -hmm. I found out that it was just that this club was just down the street. Mm. And I remember going to that first meeting. It was a daytime meeting. I kept my Mm -hmm. dark glasses on. It was a women's meeting, actually, at 11 Mm. o'clock. I walked up those stairs, which was so hard, and walked in. And I remember the woman sitting next to me. Linda, who I, um, she's passed on now. But, Mm -hmm. um, and she said, you don't ever have to drink again, and you don't ever have to feel like this again. And I was like, "Mm, how does she know? And um, she said, when was your last drink? And I said, about an hour ago. You know, and I got my big book, and, um, and so the early days for me were... I didn't do anything except go to meetings, read that book, and listen to the people in the rooms. I remember going to coffee with them after maybe my second meeting in the evening, and And looking at them around the table going, how can they be having normal conversations and enjoying this time together when they all have this dreaded thing called alcoholism? How can Hmm. that be happening? I didn't understand it. I really didn't because to me it was a sentence of some kind. And, of course, what I didn't know, and you've heard this before, is that... I thought arriving at the Rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous was the end for me. It felt like Uh the end. What I didn't know is that it was the beginning, and I didn't know that. I mean, you don't know, do you? And,
0: you
1: know, it's just an incredible way to live for somebody who had no ability. I had no chance of having a successful life based on what I knew about living uh, when I got here.
0: And it sounds to me like that that realization about people being able to have normal lives and normal ways of living it occurred to you when you went out to coffee with them was getting together with people outside the program and see how they operate outside of the AA cocoon is more impactful than seeing them in a meeting where everything is very structured. Did you find that to be the case?
1: I did. The meeting before uh-huh. the meeting, the meeting after the meeting. Uh-huh. Um, there was a place down inside the loop. Um, anyway, they had dances there, sober dances. Oh, yeah? And I oh, went wow. and it was the first time I'd ever danced sober, you know. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. And, <laughs> and it, wasn't, it wasn't too good, but I did it. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there were... Um, important things given to me as gifts in one-on-one conversations with people.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, I had a whole bunch of people in my life, uh, friends and um, uh, family at that time that all drank. And so this um, changing your playground and your playpen thing was, was difficult. But what I realized is that The people of AA never steered me wrong, you know, Mm, and mm -hmm. um, slowly, slowly I began to enjoy the company of people without alcohol, you know, but it it took time, Howard. Yeah.
0: Uh, Did you get a sponsor right away and did she have you working on the steps immediately? What what did that look like for you?
1: Pretty, pretty quick, pretty quick. Um, Somebody recommended this woman and... um, (laughs) Her name was Pat, but they called her Bubbles. (laughs) (laughs) And Bubbles. And she was a very gregarious, very clownish, uh, Uh out there Uh kind of person. Yeah. And uh, very loving and understood this uh-huh. program. And she had me and I don't know how many others. Um, too many. Too many of us. And uh, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. it was like
1: a hen with a bunch of chicks. And, um, and I worked my steps first with her. I did uh, things like girls and I would rent beach houses and go Hmm. and stay at a beach house um, and -hmm. be sober together, you know. Now, during Mm -hmm. this time, I didn't know anything about AA or traditions or anything else. And so some of that broke down over time because, you know, none of us knew how to actually have a friend, you know.
2: To, mm-hmm. to yeah. have a
1: friend, you have to be a friend, and none of us knew how to do that yet. But uh-huh. uh, but we were trying. <laughs> and um, but the main thing was is that we were not drinking together mm. and mm. trying to enjoy life, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I I was lucky. I had the freedom to do those kinds of things and conferences. And um, so I I didn't say no to anything. I really didn't.
0: How did your involvement with AA early on affect uh, your relationships at home?
1: The first thing I can remember is is that I began to learn to listen.
0: You hmm. know, before mm-hmm.
1: it was more important for you to hear what I had to say. Right. To where, you know, the alcoholism just took away my ability to to acknowledge or care about what anybody else was experiencing. Hmm. That's the height of this selfishness and self-centeredness that we talk about. Uh You know, my mouth is saying, I love you, I love you. But my behavior is saying, I don't really care about you. And so that began to change. Mm -hmm. And and the other thing was being able to be counted on.
2: Mm -hmm. You know,
1: if I say I'm going to do this, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, these were the early blessings of having, you know, just a, cursory understanding of these steps a really not a perfect working of the steps Mm -hmm. but i began to recognize that these things i could do today to begin to make up for and the truth is and i've told our daughter i've told her and dale too that i will happily be a lifetime living these amends you know I'm getting better and better through the steps of AA, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a joy, mm-hmm. you know, not because I did so, so much damage. I did damage. Right. But because I'm happy to be doing that, to have the chance to do it as best I can with the people I love. It's all that really matters.
0: That is, uh, that's is—that's really very inspiring and uh, a great testament to the gifts that the program has to give. One of the things I like to ask the people I've been interviewing for this show is about during their sobriety, and you've been sober a long time, and so often people don't recognize that there—that there's a period between getting sober and today that contains all kinds of different things over which perhaps we could have drank and we didn't, or things that occurred that really strained our resolve to stay sober or maybe self-sabotaged us. Can you think of some times in your sobriety over the 35 years that either you felt like you might drink over it or where the program took on a secondary or tertiary priority in your life, times that might have been shaky for you?
1: Yes. Well, the first one I remember was when my sister and niece died, and Mm. I I did what alcoholics should never do during difficult times in life, which is to pull back. Oh, yeah. And I can remember, um, you know, just being so sad and not wanting to share that, you know, in Uh meeting and not, you know, just just pulling back. And then another thing, Time. It was during that time that I got my next sponsor. It was in the aftermath of that that I got my next sponsor. And and she led me to the Rosewood group. And getting out of the club and into a meeting where they really are focused on the solution, Mm -hmm. focused on traditions, focused on service. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to that Rosewood group and realizing that these people were sharing from the heart. And hmm. I hadn't learned how to do that. I've mm-hmm. learned how to parrot program stuff. Mm-hmm. I've learned how to get a laugh. Mm-hmm. I've learned how to do, you know, a lot of things in an AA meeting. But I had not learned to speak from my heart. And yeah. when I came to Rosewood, that's what that group was doing. And um and I had to just be quiet until I could learn how to do that. Mm-hmm so it was like a second initiation almost for me um during my husband's health problems Mm -hmm. this was before his sobriety he had you know really serious um Mm back-to-back health problems heart trouble cancer and i put my nurse hat on for Mm -hmm. like two years but i'd course, you know, like everything else. I did it to the max and it nearly made me crazy.
0: Did it pull you away from your program?
1: Yeah, it did. I don't know. I think maybe I was too full of myself. I had (laughs) this important job, you know, (laughs) I've got to, I've got to save it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. And that was another risky time. And
0: how did the program get you through that?
1: One of the things that I remember about after the loss of my sister and, um, and her, her daughter is that the people I had come in contact with, they continued to check and check on me. You know, mm-hmm. I had become part of somebody else's life. Oh, like yeah. My my peer group in Alcoholics Anonymous.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
1: during the time of my husband's illness, um, I was living with a great deal of fear. Sure. But I wasn't unloading that fear the way we were taught to. Yes. As he came out of these illnesses and began to recover from them, I was still locked into, you know, that, um, you know, something bad's going to happen. The oh, other yeah. shoe's going to drop. Mm-hmm. It was that mm-hmm. feeling that, and it was very familiar because that's oh, yeah. kind of what I got to Alcoholics Anonymous with. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, his solution became alcohol after those two years. And so we went right from open heart surgery, cancer and cancer surgery into, <laughs> you know, alcoholism. I kept a lot of that inside me. Oh, yeah. But once again, my friends, my women, uh-huh. my people. Sure. And I have a huge circle of wonderful, sober women mm-hmm. continued to help me. So I, I would say when I couldn't pray, when I couldn't do the steps, when I couldn't do what I've been taught to do to live in this program, mm-hmm. it is the people yeah. Of Alcoholics Anonymous, the yeah. fellowship that have rescued me, you know.
0: Yeah, I always like to think that if we stay close enough to the program, if we stay engaged, if we're sponsoring other people, if we're if we're calling our sponsor, if we're staying engaged in service work and that sort of thing, that there will come times right. at which just the way we feel about ourselves is going to keep us from wanting to reach out. And it's at those points when I'm most apt to not want to reach out that because of what I've done in the program, Mm -hmm. people reach into my life and they will they will pull me out. If I had stayed isolated during those periods and away from everybody and hadn't Mm -hmm. done anything to generate and um, nourish those relationships, those times might have come and nobody might have been there for me. Did you find the same thing?
1: I did. I did. And now, mind you, I... um, most of the time, through these times I'm describing, I was still going to meetings. Oh but yeah. It's, you know, sometimes the pulling back can be very subtle. Yeah. Um, you know, so that it might look like you're still doing everything that you're supposed to be doing, but inside you've 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 lost something. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: but sobriety is progressive, oh, just yeah. like alcoholism mm-hmm. is. And and I believe that with all my heart you know is cyclical too it's not always good you know things happen and you know i couldn't have maintained the level of um activity and devotion and uh, obsession with alcoholics anonymous throughout my whole sobriety so so it, it tempers and it goes through you know very much like relationships you know and um and so god has protected me through a lot of the times when i might have not made the right choices for myself but mm-hmm. he came in the form of people yeah
0: know? isn't that amazing
1: it is it really is um through all the things mm-hmm. i have never and I, I can say this with complete honesty
2: mm-hmm.
1: the idea the strong obsession to have a drink has not returned for me. You know, I may not be in the best shape mentally. Right. This um, being placed in a position of neutrality where alcohol is concerned. Yeah. I suppose I've never stopped doing what I need to do enough for that obsession to return. Yeah. I have felt maybe a little more vulnerable,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: um, I, I feel like that the miracle for me is, is that this brain could not leave alcohol alone. Right. No longer because of what I do. Yeah. And I'm in meetings. I sponsor women. I yeah. have a sponsor.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and, um, you know, some of my sponsor relationships... One of them is 27 years old. Mm. You know this this woman who mm-hmm. was a mm-hmm. you know a young yeah. unmarried single girl mm-hmm. when she got here. Now she's married with three kids, oh and looking my. at retiring. And we've been together that whole time. You know, That's I mean, amazing. yeah. And you're you're right that we place these things in our life because we have to. Yeah. Because we're going to die if we don't. Yeah. And then we end up. Down the road, looking at the mm-hmm. blessings that come from, from having this yeah. as a way of life.
0: That position of neutrality that you were talking about earlier, it's so important to us recovering alcoholics. My guess is that that was really important for you whenever Dale was starting to move down towards his, his end with the disease. What happened for you?
1: For me, it was, um, you know, because he'd been so sick and I remember thinking to myself, hey, I've never had these things happen to me. I've never had my chest cracked open. Right. I've never had cancer at that point, I hadn't. I've caught up now. And the depression that followed that. Hmm. And I'm thinking, yes, of course you are depressed. And he was. He went and saw somebody. And, and maybe I noticed that he was drinking a little more. And I thought, well, you know, he's never been alcoholic before. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is just how he's dealing with it. And he maybe said something one time. Um, but then I remember in October... Um, it was his birthday, and uh, we had gotten in the car to drive, you know, out of town, mm-hmm. and uh, and he was like asleep, you know, mm. passed out, actually. Mm-hmm. And it was early in the day, and I thought, this is so odd. And when we got up there, I realized he'd been drinking
2: mm. in the morning,
1: I mean, fairly early in the day. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I remember going for a walk and saying, you know, I think your drinking might be getting out of Hand here,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: and he said, "You know, you're right. I've been leaning on it too heavy, and you know, it's just been all this health stuff and work stuff, and so. But you're right, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut back on all that. And I'm, well, great. Mm. So that was October, and, um, and of course once an al- a real alcoholic says i'm going to try and curtail my drinking <laughs> yeah. that's when you lose all control that's right that's <laughs> which right which is what happened and so his sobriety date is december 7th so that's how fast from october to december it wow. was kind of like our our meeting and our marriage you know it just went <laughs> that wow. it was like a wildfire for him he lost all control
0: oh my goodness
1: because of good guidance in this Program. I was able to stay out of his business. I gave him, God gave me words mm-hmm. that I would never have spoken. Mm-hmm. God um, gave me the idea to give him some phone numbers mm-hmm. of some guys I knew.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Actually, he knew them. I mean, he used to come to my birthday meetings yeah. and just loved my people. They loved him, yeah. you know. Yeah, What's yeah. I mean, not to love? Yeah. But anyway it was it was handled just right. But of course, you know, you don't know when somebody enters the rooms, is it gonna work? Yeah. And I had a hell of a lot invested in this deal at that point. Yeah, you, know? you
0: did, sure. Um
1: we both did. Yeah. And um but he took to it like a duck to water.
0: He did. He did.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I was there for his, some of his first meetings, and somewhere along the way, he decided that he was going to become the coffee guy. And that service commitment, <laughs> I think, has been the most wonderful thing for him. Because the man who used to do it, you remember Jim Kay?
1: Yes!
0: He did that for, like, 20 years, and uh, every time I see Dale with the coffee maker, I, I think back to Jim and how how good times and bad times, just that one service commitment really kept him attached closely
1: attached closely and Mm -hmm. it, it is a wonderful thing
0: so it sounds to me like alcoholics anonymous has been a big changer in your life the fact that your husband of 50 years found aa 12 years ago i know only from talking to him how much his sobriety has enriched that relationship watching you stay sober all those years must have given him some kind of real hope along the way too
1: I think so. We talk about the miracle happening twice in our family. It's like lightning striking twice. I mean, it's amazing that I got it. But then to have him get it and be able to live this way happily and to change and improve and help others. And, um, you know, gratitude is Mm -hmm. a word that we use. I feel it constantly, this overwhelming um realization
2: mm-hmm.
1: that none of the good things in my life would have been possible without this way of life,
0: isn't yes, that yeah.
1: which you know I remember what Dr. Bob said said none of us you know get accolades for being here. We found heaven as we were backing away from the gates of hell, yeah
2: you know yeah,
1: and and so yeah. and yeah. so that that's how I look at it, you know, is that yeah. because of the person that I became under the influence of alcohol because I I was able to see that yeah. uh, with the awareness that God gave me I'm able to to live this life and report to you that it is still getting better <laughs> you know it is still getting better I mean I, that's just the truth
0: with everything you've gone through too over the past few years uh to to see you as optimistic and positive as you seem today to see that bright gleam in your eyes it's just amazing I mean I don't need any more demonstration of God's presence in your life than that. I mean, it's just—it it really. really is. It's really astounding.
1: And, yeah, and um, you know, cancer is a big—it's a big club. I never wanted to join,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: even in that, you know, a woman asked me as we were coming out of a meeting. This was before the pandemic, and mm-hmm. I had—it um, was probably one of the very last in-person meetings I got to go mm-hmm. to. And she said. You know, now that you've had this diagnosis and you're facing surgeries and and chemo and radiate, all this stuff, what is your experience with this so far? And you know what? Mm -hmm. My truthful answer is, it is about the love I've received. Mm -hmm. What You know, all these things that had to happen, Mm -hmm. but what came through to me because of what I've learned from you people Mm -hmm. in these rooms is that there is a love, everything comes from it. And, mm. um, and I receive more of it. Oh my God, you know, from family, from friends, from, from God himself, you know? So, I mean, that's the deal. That's that... the deal. And the terms are, you know, our, are, are uh, life on life's terms, but it's like, you know, we mm-hmm. don't get one without the other.
0: What a beautiful sentiment that is, Sue, and such a great way for us to to conclude the fact that it's the love that sustains us, it's the love that helps us grow and get through the tough times. And I'm so glad that you and I reconnected. Uh, even though I've been seeing Dale for years and see you occasionally, this is my opportunity to tell you that I love you and that Aww, I this I, Howard,
1: I, I love you too. I really
0: appreciate your doing this and sharing just such a an extraordinary story of hope and love and just God's presence must have been with us today because this thing went very smoothly. So I want to, again, thank you for doing this. God bless you for that.
1: Thank you, Howard.
0: Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Show them how to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. If you really like the show, I'd be most grateful if you can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. And please join the AA Recovery Interviews Facebook group, where our fellowship gathers online. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.